Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, with me and Musa Tracy Bumgard and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Sudan civil society groups meet in Addis Ababa and pressure mounts on Zimbabwe's opposition leader Morgan Changurai to resign. In economics, talks to end strike at platinum mines in South Africa to resume today. And in sports news, South Africa's swimmers prepare for Commonwealth Games. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The government and rebels in South Sudan have traded accusations of breaking a ceasefire deal just hours after it came to effect. Information Minister Michael Makuyeluith says government positions are still being attacked and is warned that the army might have to defend itself. A rebel spokesperson accused the government of launching attacks on their positions in Unity, Jongli and Apanal states soon after the agreement was signed. The two sides in South Sudan agreed on a ceasefire on Friday, bringing an end to five weeks of fighting. About 700,000 people have been forced from their homes. The newly appointed Prime Minister in the Central African Republic, Andre Nazapieka, says stopping unrelenting massacres and other atrocities across the country is high on the agenda. Nazapieka, a regional banking official, made his remarks yesterday, a day after he was appointed as Premier by the newly elected interim president, Catherine Samba Panza. He says ending the ever-growing violence, which has wreaked havoc in the country for months, is key to bringing stability and security back on track. Nazapieka also mentioned that his country would be seeking help from its friends in the international community to overcome the mounting crisis. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has welcomed Tunisia's adoption of a new constitution. Ban declared it a historic milestone and a model for other countries seeking reform. Prime Minister Mahdi Jomam named a caretaker cabinet task with organizing fresh polls, two key goals of the revolution that touched off the Arab Spring three years ago. The new document guarantees basic freedoms and gender equality. The assassination of two opposition leaders last year pitched the country into crisis with the ruling moderate Islamist party in Nahda under pressure to step down from secular opponents. The Syrian government has agreed to allow women and children to leave the besieged city of Homs. This is according to the joint UN and Arab League Special Envoy Lakhdar Brahimi. Speaking at the end of the second day of face-to-face meetings in Geneva yesterday, Brahimi said the Syrian government has requested to vet all men wishing to leave the city of Homs. The government is saying that women and children can leave all city of Homs whenever they wish. 
They are asking for the lists of civilians so that uh, they see that they are civilians and not uh, armed people. South African Disaster Relief Organization Gift of the Giver says negotiations between itself and Al-Qaeda militants keeping South African teacher Pierre Korki hostage in Yemen are severely strained. Gift of the Giver's MTS Suleiman says the kidnappers refused to believe that the South African government was not willing to pay the requested ransom in exchange for Korki's release. The kidnappers are demanding $3 million. Suleiman says the kidnappers insist that the relief organization's office manager in Yemen has stolen the ransom money the South African government had taken to that country. The South African government has been in talks with the Yemeni government regarding Korki's release and have maintained that the government does not pay any ransom. Korki and his wife Yolandi were kidnapped by al-Qaeda militants in Tahiz, Yemen in May. And finally, poachers have killed a rhino in the Nairobi National Park just outside the Kenyan capital. The Kenya Wildlife Service says the Nairobi National Park is one of its best protected areas, so the killing comes as a shock. This is the latest in a spate of attacks on Kenya's rhino and elephant populations. Kenya has recently increased its anti-poaching laws, with poachers now facing fines and possible life in jail. Last year, Kenya started inserting microchips into rhino horns. Wildlife officials plan to eventually microchip all rhinos in the country, just over a thousand animals altogether. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And it's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A ceasefire between the South Sudan government and rebel forces has been welcomed by United Nations aid agencies. An agreement was made at peace talks in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa, which aims to bring to an end weeks of conflict, which has forced more than half a million people to flee their homes. Daniel Dickinson reports. Since the outbreak of fighting in mid-December, some 490,000 South Sudanese have been internally displaced, and more than 100,000 have fled into neighboring Uganda, Ethiopia, Kenya and Sudan. The fighting has disrupted ongoing development work in South Sudan, one of the world's poorest and least developed countries. The UN World Food Programme said thousands of South Sudanese will require food assistance for months to come. WFP spokesperson in Geneva, Elizabeth Beers, added that the frequent looting of food stocks and continued instability means that many people may not get the food they need. Humanitarian access and looting of food stocks are major concerns for WFP. As a result of lootings of the WFP facilities around the country, we estimate that we have lost more than 3,700 metric tons of food, enough to feed more than 220,000 people for a month. So it's a major loss. We are doing what we can to protect other food stocks, and also we are uh, trying to recover lost stocks where possible. 
WFP warehouses in Malakal have been almost entirely emptied by repeated incidents of looting. The UN refugee agency UNHCR, like WFP, welcomed the ceasefire, but said it needed to be implemented quickly. Meanwhile, it's starting a mass measles immunization campaign in northern Uganda to prevent the spread of the disease among the 59,000 South Sudanese refugees who are now sheltering there. The UN Security Council in New York was briefed about the plan to end hostilities on Thursday. The council president for January, Zaid Rad Zaid al-Hussein of Jordan, welcomed the ceasefire but urged the South Sudanese authorities to make sure justice was served on those people who attacked civilians. Council members condemned the violent attacks on the civilians and vulnerable groups and called for accountability for those that committed such acts. The Secretary-General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, said that the organization stood with the people of South Sudan and will continue to do everything within its means to protect civilians at risk and provide the necessary humanitarian assistance. That report by Daniel Dickinson. Leading South Sudanese civil society organizations came together in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to initiate discussions on the current crisis and the prospect for peaceful resolution. The civil society organizations held a press briefing ahead of the 22nd African Union Head of State and Government Summit. They've re- they have reacted cautiously to the signing of a ceasefire agreement between the government and rebel movement amid fears it will do little to halt ongoing violence in the country. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Mashangu reports. The recent cessation of hostilities agreement between the government of South Sudan led by President Salva Kiir and Sudan's People Liberation Movement Army in a position led by Dr. Rick Masha comes about six weeks after violence erupted in the capital, Juba, spreading to other areas soon after and bringing the new nation to the brink of a civil war. The deal signed in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa on Thursday calls on the two sides to immediately cease hostilities and begin discussions on how to address the root cause of the conflict. Its preamble reads, mindful of the desire of the people of South Sudan to live in peace and dignity, and in an all-inclusive democratic society based on justice, equality, respect for human rights and the rule of law, and reaffirming the commitment of parties to building a unified, stable and peaceful nation in which power shall be peacefully transferred. Speaking at a press briefing at the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa, Civil society organizations called on the upcoming Heads of State and Government Summit to put South Sudan at the top of their agenda. Disma Sengunda is the chairperson of the Sudan Consortium. People live in caves, people have no food, women have no access to anything, children, all schools have been bombed, homes burnt to the ground, farming where they farm, where they grow their crops have been all bombed by the Sudan government, and yet President Omar Bashir is going to come here for the summit and his fellow heads of states will discuss other things and forget that he's killing his own people. Doing the same thing that he did in Darfur, but this time doing it in South Kordofan and Blue Nile, and that impunity has to end. There has to be a, a, a time when we must say you end this impunity in which people commit crimes and they go scot-free without being punished for what they have done. The second and most important thing is that now Sudan, South Sudan certainly has come down a little bit simply because of the secession that was signed last this week. What we require is that the implementation of the AU. Having a secession of hostilities is very fine, 
having arms, uh, guns stopping and no more fighting is very fine, but how the building of the structures of the government of South Sudan was part of the problems that led to the, to the fighting. And if that is not followed through at the heads of state summit, well, we may see another resurgence of the same conflict in South Sudan. Edmond Yagani is the executive director at the Community Empowerment Program Organization in South Sudan. I think one of really key appeal that we have to the head of African states at the summit in AU is really taking responsibility to use South Sudan as a case study of really an African young country that is nurtured by African approach because I think South Sudan is really come at the time that the concept of African solution for African problems could have been applied in South Sudan. So my appeal to them is that let the violence in South Sudan stop and also let them try to push seriously the humanitarian intervention for the internal displaced people which are really in the bush of South Sudan, doesn't have food, doesn't have clean water, doesn't have medicines. So that is, that's, that's really my key appeal to them. And also I would like to appeal that let them cooperate with IGAT because IGAT is really playing a mediation role, but also IGAT will play a role in making sure that they monitor the ceasefire signs. So let AU also give an effort and support to ensure that IGAT is having a strength of monitoring the, the, the ceasefire that was reached between the two conflict parties of South Sudan, which is the government of South Sudan, and then the, party in, the parties in opposition, which is the rebels, to make sure that they really commit themselves to the terms of the reference of the ceasefire. Balegu Obur is from the South Sudan Women's Empowerment Network. She says they are concerned that the agreement does not say anything about the protection of aid workers. As we speak at the moment, there are threats to aid workers in South Sudan following the recent crisis. And um, we also know that there is a denial of humanitarian assistance to people who are in need and that these are serious violations of international humanitarian law. And um, these are also committed by both parties. So we urge the African Union and IGAD to condemn the continuation of these actions and in, in the strongest term. And we demand that both parties to grant immediate and safe and unimpeded humanitarian access. And on the issue of accountability that um, Edmund has also highlighted on, what I want to add is that we do seriously say that there is need for accountability and a broader governance um, reform. There are horrific human rights uh, violations that were committed by both parties in the recent conflict, including ethnically motivated killings. And uh, we believe that it's important that those who are accused of such crimes are held accountable and the victims get justice. Civil society organizations say for South Sudan to achieve peace and stability, there needs to be a credible system of governance that will take care of the provisions of the cessation of hostilities and other documents, including the constitution. They say a credible government is necessary for the country's prosperity and peaceful coexistence. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlantla Matlangu in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. For comments about our show, you can send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905, or you can get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at channelafrica1. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorza. Africa, amuka na unai. Zimbabwe's opposition leader Morgan Changarai could be in for a ride as calls for his resignation intensify. During his State of the Nation address, Changarai took the opportunity to attack his critics within his party. He reminded his party followers that he is yet to resign 
Despite his failure to offer anything new to the Zimbabwean problems, Simon Muchema reports from Harare. The support that Morgan Changrai received in Harare Friday when he was delivering his State of the Nation address could have sent shivers to those calling for his resignation. As he entered the hotel, a deafening applaud was heard. Soon after losing the July 31 harmonized elections to arrival Robert Mugabe, calls for Changrai's resignation intensified. Within the party ranks of Movement for Democratic Change, calls for leadership renewal were heard soon after the 2013 elections. Some felt the former Prime Minister had nothing new to offer after leading the party for over a decade. His critics also cited controversies surrounding his sexual life after the death of his wife Susan in 2009 as a major weakness. Changrai told the gathering that he was not going to resign. And you know, the person who knows that he stole this election is Mugabe and Zanubi. They know that. They may deceive themselves, they may do whatever, but the fact of the matter is that uh, they stole the election massively. And for somebody to suggest that I should resign because I went into election, ah, come on. It was not an individual decision. During his State of the Nation address, Changrai repeated appeals for help by the international community. He said this would allow Zimbabweans to participate in a democratic election once again. The AU and Sadak Observer Mission reports noted serious irregularities that did not inform their conclusions. The reports noted serious breaches that would be unacceptable in other SADAC and AU states. This country cannot afford to be isolated. We have to engage everyone, the West, the East, the South, the North, and everyone else as this isolation is not in the best interest of Zimbabwe. There is need for a sustained program of global engagement. But what we must start doing is to clean up our house. We have to respect human rights. We have to shun those human rights abuses that brought restrictive measures on some individuals in this country. Changrai blamed President Robert Mugabe and his party ZANU-PF for the problems affecting the nation since July elections last year. He, however, did not offer anything new as if confirming fears by those pushing for his resignation. The current palace state of the economy is the true result of that stolen election. And nobody's government appears to care a hoot about the direction the country is taking and the hardships ordinary Zimbabweans are experiencing every day. In fact, the strategy is to impoverish the people so that there is no accountability for the corruption that has taken place. So the year 2014 is likely to be a tough year as evidenced by the economic paralysis. What is saddening is that even in this crisis of monumental proportions, some have sought to prioritize personal circumstances and family issues. Given the problems we are facing as a nation, the country is facing a crisis of governance, a crisis of legitimacy, a crisis of the economy, and the crisis of expectation. But cabinet is yet to meet, even in the middle of this huge crisis. The president has the luxury to go and leave. Despite painting a gloomy image 
of the situation in Zimbabwe, certain diplomats feel hope is not yet lost. The USA ambassador to Zimbabwe, Bruce Watton, said his country's re-engagement process with President Mugabe would continue. Oh, there's tremendous hope for Zimbabwe. Um, and primarily that rests in the determination and the capability of the people of Zimbabwe. Um, I think that it's important that there be a marketplace of ideas. I think that uh, MDCT and other opposition parties as well as ZANU-PF help to provide those ideas and then it's up to the people to decide what works best. Yeah, we continue to re-engage. We're working very closely together on issues such as uh, public health in Zimbabwe, uh, conservation, agricultural development and other means of economic development. Former Prime Minister and MDC leader Morgan Changrai appears to be desperate for political survival, it is noted. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Malawi's Transport Minister Sadiq Mia has resigned from President Joyce Banda's ruling People's Party PP where he was Vice President for the Southern Region. He was an influential figure in the ruling party. His resignation comes amid reports that President Joyce Banda refused to pick him as running mate. George Mhango has more from Blantyre. Mia, an indisputably powerhouse in Malawi's lower Shira areas, announced this at a news conference in Blantyre hours after he tendered his resignation that he arrived at the decision after wide consultations. The ruling People's Party, PP, said they received the news with shock, saying Mia's resignation, described as an influential figure and an asset in the party, was a big blow and crisis in that need to be addressed. PP Deputy Publicity Secretary Kenny Msonda said the party, if there is an opportunity, has to sit down and approach Mia to ask him to reverse his decision. Msonda said the resignation of a vice president, which follows another resignation of the vice president for the central region, Kasim Chirumpa, a few months ago, need to jerk up the party and investigate what is going on. Mia, who was rumored as one of the possible candidates of a running mate to Joyce Banda in the May 20 presidential polls, said he has resigned after wide consultations and a spiritual and personal reflection. Well, I would uh, want to reserve them for I, I think I gave you enough information. Uh, I have given you information that I, uh, I thought of uh, uh, resigning. And uh, for the future, if you give me time, we shall one day call on each other and, and talk more. Yes, I've already sent the letter to... Mia has served as cabinet minister in the former ruling United Democratic Front, the Democratic Progressive Party and the PP regimes, enjoying political support in the southern region, especially the lower Shire, owing to his commitment to development projects in Shets. Mia's resignation follows that of Sam Ganda, an MP from the Lower Shire and first Deputy Speaker of Parliament and Legislator for Ncheu, Jones Chingola, who resigned in protest 
following some disputes during the primaries that the ruling party PP has been conducting. Msonda, in a separate interview, said the party was shocked with the resignation of Mia, whom he described as a key figure in the party and government. You may also wish to know that Honorable Sidik Mia was a very dedicated member of the party. If anything, he was one of the very closest people to the president. And uh, I, wouldn't, I shouldn't hide words here. He was one of the people who was very approachable to all members of the party on the grassroots and the hierarchy. So for such a person to go, it is a big blow to the party. In politics, you can agree to disagree and move together as a family. This is what is there in politics. Not only in politics, even in religious circles. Sometimes the issues you disagree, but you agree and move together for the sake of building the party. Mind you, do not forget, we are heading towards a very, very important uh, 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 scene here. We have a few years to go uh, for before the 20th, 40, uh, 20th May, uh, tripartite elections are held. So when we're losing people like these, people who are very instrumental, people who have helped the party to win the generation come 2014 May, I'm sure it's something that should be of great concern to the party. However, Chancellor College political analyst Blessings in Singer told the nation that in politics, especially at this time of elections, everything is possible. He further said it would be difficult to advise the PP on what they have to do so that their members remain intact at this electoral period. George Mhango, Channel Africa, Blandaya. The Zambian chapter of the Media Institute of Southern Africa, Misa Zambia, has called on that country's government not to interfere with the operation of social media and other online media, a move they say would be an infringement to the access of information by the public. The call comes amid threats by the ruling patriotic government to black all social media in Zambia. For more on this, Channel Africa Sifuniso Mulolo spoke to Misa acting chairperson person Helen Mwale. As Nisa Zambia we have uh, said that uh, the decision by government to regulate uh, online media in the country is a direct infringement on the freedom of the press. This is because uh, we still in Zambia we still have oppressed oppressive laws that our government is using to intimidate the media. But uh, however as Nisa we strongly feel that uh, this is an infringement on the people's right to express themselves. With regards to your interventions, what has happened so far? Because we hear that uh, you have appeared before a parliamentary select committee. Yes, Uh, I I appeared before this uh, parliamentary select committee and uh, we have told them to say that uh, it is, uh, you know, this uh, online thing is a new phenomenon and uh, it has just uh, brought a lot of excitement uh, to a lot of people. Because as NISA has been promoting uh, freedom of expression built in the media or cyberspace, and uh, it would be very unfair for government to go ahead and uh, shut down online media. And as NISA, uh, we, we, we are saying that, uh, we, we are waiting to see, because uh, currently uh, we have the what we call the electronic transaction that is regulated, uh, uh, where Zikta, Zikta regulates the ZM domain. And uh, the internet is a wider uh, thing. And uh, if uh, Zikta uh, regulates the ZM domain, other people out there can use other domains to still access uh, social media. And uh, it would be interesting to see how government would regulate the outside domain. How would you describe the state of the media under the Patriotic Front government? As least our position has been that uh, we want a free media that is sustainable, 
that's why we've been advocating for the access of information bill, which is important in promoting sustainable environment for the media in Zambia. Uh, the government should uh, review and uh, we've been saying that uh, we've been appealing actually to government to review and repeal certain pieces of legislation that have been bearing on uh, freedoms of individuals. Uh, if the access to information law was to be uh, relevant in the country. And uh, if uh, we feel that if the country had good laws that promoted the media, all those who were operating online could have been operating openly and freely. Uh, so we feel at the moment the, the media uh, environment is, under, is not very much conducive because we've uh, journalists have uh, really suffered uh, under the hands of uh, the successive regimes because uh, really we are being attacked. Most of the times journalists are being attacked by mostly their members from the uh, ruling party. How far is uh, Zambia in achieving uh, the same um, access to information? Because I know that this is an issue that has been ongoing from the previous regimes up to uh, now. Uh, just recently, if you've noticed, our president has uh, opened the Facebook page. Huh? I hope you're aware about that. Uh, and as Lisa, we said that we moved by the president uh, to open a Facebook page. That is, the PF government was showing appreciation for the need for citizens to have uh, access to information and uh, communicate so that they can communicate with people interested to lead the country on their behalf. But um, Nisa has always been calling government to enact the access to information bill without delay to ensure that the media operated independently and free from threats. Uh, as things are at the moment, uh, we are still pushing. And, of course, from our Minister of Information, there is that uh, will to push for the freedom of uh, information bill. But uh, I know you know that uh, there is need for political will, of course, for this bill to be enacted. We feel there is uh, no political will at the moment to enact the bill, but as Mesa, we shall continue to call upon government to make sure that they implement the access information bill. That was the acting chairperson of the Media Institute for Southern Africa in Zambia, Helen Mwale, on the line talking to Sifuniso Mulolo. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.30 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can send us your comments on plus two seven. Double oh eight two plus two seven double three two five nine zero five. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org or get a hold of us on our Twitter handle which is Channel Africa One. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning. Aid agencies welcome the signing of a ceasefire between South Sudan's government and rebel forces, but say thousands of displaced people are still in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon welcomes Tunisia's adoption of a new constitution, and South African Disaster Relief Organization Gift of the Giver says negotiations between itself and Al-Qaeda militants keeping South African teacher Pierre Gorki hostage in Yemen are severely strained and those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. North Korea has urged South Korea and the United States to cancel their annual military drills in the Korean Peninsula, a move it says will help mend relations and boost reconciliation. Speaking at a press conference at the United Nations in New York, the DPRK's ambassador called on South Korea to end the cycle of slander and hatred and called for the annual war games to be shelved to prevent a nuclear holocaust in the Korean Peninsula. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The call for better relations comes with a caveat. Cancel your military drills due at the end of February or do it far from the Korean Peninsula. Sin Son Ho is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's ambassador to the United Nations. Even minor and existential conflict can immediately lead to an all-out war on the Korean Peninsula. This is a stark reality today. Any war on the Korean Peninsula will help big powers fish in troubled waters and bring unimaginable destruction to the Koreans. The briefing in New York follows an open letter by North Korea's National Defense Commission calling for better relations with the South, including resuming reunions for families separated as a result of the Korean War, the commission vowing to completely halt hostile military acts while realizing better cooperation with the South. It is our position that the international community should no longer permit the United States and South Korea to carry on their dangerous military joint exercises on the Korean Peninsula. If the United States and South Korea dare to move into such dangerous war games against the, again, again on the Korean Peninsula, which is the hottest sport in the world, they will never escape from responsibility for undermining the peace and the security on the Korean Peninsula and in the region. South Korea's foreign ministry urged its neighbor to prove its sincerity with real action, not words, while immediately rejecting the call to cancel the drills, calling the joint exercises with the United States defensive in nature. But North Korea's ambassador urged the South to take their proposals seriously. The proposals made by our Supreme Organ of the state are not aiming at putting pressures on the South Korean authorities. It is for South Korea to take our proposals seriously and have a sincere attitude towards improving the North-South relations. In our press conference with Ambassador Sin So Ho, journalists were allowed to ask three questions all in succession. He answered none of them referred us to the official Korean Central News Agency for answers, then got up and left. Sherman Bryceby's in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The South African National Institute for Communicable Diseases, NICD, has quelled fears of a possible malaria outbreak in the south of Johannesburg. Two cases of severe malaria, with neither of the patients recently having traveled to malaria endemic areas, prompted an alert. NICD, however, assures that the incident does not have 
does not necessarily spell out an outbreak, saying that the infections were likely acquired through the bite of an infected imported mosquito, which likely traveled in a suitcase or vehicle to the area. The Institute's Professor Lucille Bloomberg further explains. So these are rare incidents. What they probably are due to are traveling infected mosquitoes who've uh, traveled in from well-known malaria area, have survived the journey, and they probably came in on a car or a minibus or in a suitcase, and have bitten people at their destination, one in El Dorado Park and one in Linasia. So this does occasionally happen. You say that these malaria-carrying mosquitoes may have made their way from well-known malaria areas. Which areas in South Africa are known to be high-risk areas of malaria? So our malaria transmission areas are the very far north of KwaZulu-Natal, bordering on Mozambique, the low-felt areas of Mpumalanga around the Kruger National Park, but not Nelspruit, not White River, and low-felt areas in the northeastern areas of Limpopo province. And in fact, our malaria has been reduced in terms of risk in this country quite considerably in the last 10 years. But in these areas, there still remains some risk. But Professor Blumberg, you know, Lanesia South is not really far apart from El Dorado Park. Yeah. Should there be concern that there could be a possible outbreak within that area? So these two people were probably infected about three weeks ago. They live at least 10 kilometers apart, and typically, generally, mosquitoes fly a maximum of two kilometers. So, you know, are these two incidents related? It's a little difficult to say. There has been an intensive investigation in the area, and we did not find any malaria mosquitoes in the area. We don't have malaria mosquitoes usually in the high felt. They don't do well here with the temperature that we have here. So, you know, these mosquitoes that fly, that are transported in, generally don't survive. So these are isolated, unusual incidents. And what about the rainy season right now? Could it also present an opportunity for malaria infections? So it would present the opportunity in malaria areas where the mosquitoes are found. It is not an opportunity for malaria outbreak to happen in Gauteng. We don't have the malaria mosquitoes here. The two cases I've mentioned were just um, isolated events where the mosquitoes traveled into the area. They're not going to set up a, a local outbreak because we have good rains. They really don't survive that long. And in fact, very few survive the journey from the malaria area. And can one identify malaria infection? What are the signs? So they're not specific. There would be generally fairly sudden onset of fever, cold shivers, hot sweats, headache and muscle pain. And most people describe it as having flu. But linked to that, there needs to be a history of travel, generally within the previous month, to a known malaria area. Or if you're living in a malaria area, these symptoms would suggest malaria. So my message is to anybody who's traveled over the Christmas and New Year holidays, if you've been in a malaria area, and for us, the highest risk area for our travelers returning to to South Africa is actually Mozambique. If you've been in a malaria area, the ones I've described, or Mozambique or other malaria areas in Africa, and you have a flu-like illness, you need to seek medical attention urgently. You need to tell the medical practitioner you've been in a malaria area. A malaria test, a blood test, has to be done. You cannot look at a person and say they do or they don't have malaria. Malaria tests must be done urgently. The results have to be obtained. If 
the first one is negative and the symptoms persist over the next day, it needs to be repeated. And if it is positive, it's very important that treatment is started urgently. Malaria illness progresses quite rapidly over just a few days to complications. That was Professor Lucille Bloomberg of the South African Institute for Communicable Diseases on the line talking to Jane Matibula. If you'd like to comment on our show, you can send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or you can get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel One. Africa Rise and Shine, Channel Africa. Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zorza. Africa Amuka Na Unai. Sonke Gender Justice, a non-profit organization aimed at promoting gender equality, is calling for the South African government to follow through on its obligations to prevent gender-based violence. This follows the case of a nine-year-old girl who was raped and set on fire in Delft in the Western Cape province. Studies have shown that in South Africa, a rape is committed above every 30 seconds. The organization also calls on South Africans to take strong stands against violence in their communities. More from Mbuiselo Bota, spokesperson at Sonke Gender Justice. As Sonke Gender Justice Network, it is our firm belief that the commitments that the president has made should in fact be able to say with one voice so far and not further. The presidency should in fact be saying to all of us, we are prepared to commit ourselves to ensure that we do not just vilify or condemn such acts, but there's visible, practical, substantive action taken. How has the National Council of Gender-Based Violence that was set up by government's effort to address rape and domestic violence been doing so far? It is hamstrung by lack of resources. So there is no visible commitment, political commitment for that matter. And, and the council, uh, which we are part of it as, as Sonke Gender Justice, has, has always had meetings, and, uh, but they, there has not been any practical program that the council would embark on. But also, secondly, this has impacted negatively both on how it works because the structure is not in place. We were supposed to be, as we, as we speak now, 18 months ago, we had conceptualized the need for us to have national strategic plan, but that has not come to fruition. This is why we say it's important that the National Gender Council is seen to be working on the ground to do uh, the work that it was mandated to do. It's not enough for us to, after every rape, after every child was molested or killed, we then do the usual uh, condemnation, vilifying, without people on the ground seeing a practical steps that go a long way towards ensuring that violence against women and children is no more a, our pastime. With research showing that rape is committed every 30 minutes in South Africa, exactly what will it take us to fight this phenomenon as a country? Well, it needs a firm political commitment that our leaders in particular would be at every given podium platform would be able to say with one voice that not in my name. So you really need political leaders to take the lead and be in charge and lead from the front. Secondly, we really need dedicated resources, both human and capital, 
because as a country, we, we pride ourselves as people who have embraced all the legal frameworks that goes towards uh, stopping gender violence. But we have not seen, you know, all of these being put into action. So it's important for us to say with one voice as a country that we would need money, would need resources, so that a department such as that of uh, led by Minister Kungwana is able to discharge its mandate. It's able to have programs, programs that people would relate to, programs that would resonate with people in their plight, in their frustrations, in some situations that look bleak and hopeless. Talk us through some of the programs that Sonke Gender Justice have put in place to fight against gender-based violence. We have Brothers for Life, in fact, is aimed at focusing on young men and boys to talk about HIV, AIDS. How should we stand up and say, not in my name? Other than the Brothers for Life, we have a program that anchors all our work, which is called One Man Can. One Man Can seeks to say that I, as an individual, as a man, what do I do to mobilize, to galvanize other men who would say all of these things should not happen in my name. There should not be a culture that is used as an excuse. People who hate gays and lesbians should not use me as a man and other men in South Africa as an excuse for violating, degrading lesbians and gays in our country. The Fatherhood Project that seeks to say men can't just be ATMs. It's important for men to relate with their children at an emotional level. It's important for men to actually recognize that their role is important and for them to journey with their partners and not think that issues relating to child rearing are best left to women. It's all of us. So fatherhood seeks also to create a certain a type of mindset, a mindset that says, Humoso, these things are possible to achieve, that violence, all of us, it's not something we're born with. It's something that we learn. That means invariably that it is something that we can unlearn. So all our programs have one reason to exist, to say that we must create a country free of violence, a country that embraces equality, a country that would protect justice, a country that would not keep quiet or look the other way when women are violated, are degraded, are killed. That was Mbuiselo Bota, spokesperson at Songke Gender Justice, a non-profit organization aimed at promoting gender equality in South Africa, talking to Khumutso Mopulane. It's 8.45 Central African time and Tracy Bumgard is up next with our economics update. Thank you, Lulu. A strong police contingent and mount security officers are closely monitoring the situation at the Anglo-American Platinum Kusaleka shaft in Rustenburg in South Africa's northwest province. Clashes erupted between the police and striking AMCU members last week Friday as roads leading to the shaft were barricaded with rocks. AMCU members are on strike demanding an entry-level salary of $1,150 monthly salary. Itumuleng Khajani is there. A group of mine officials were advised by the mine security not to come close to the shaft. Their vehicles are parked a kilometer away from the shaft as their safety cannot be guaranteed. More than 500 striking workers are chanting slogans on the road leading to the shaft. Some are carrying up carries. 
They will be briefed shortly by the AMCO shop stewards on their talks, which will resume at Pretoria this morning between their union and the MPLES Impala and Lonmin Mines. Meanwhile, tight security has been maintained outside London Platinum Mine's Roland Shaft in South Africa's northwest province as the wage strike in the Platinum Belt continues. Thousands of striking mine workers are expected to gather at Vondekorp Stadium in Marikana today in anticipation of an update on the current wage talks between AMCU and the mine bosses in the country's capital, Pretoria. Tsapang Malali reports. Non-main mine security continue to search and monitor all vehicles entering and leaving the mine's rolling shaft. The strike at London Platinum Mine remains peaceful, and no cases of violence have been reported to the police over the weekend. Meanwhile, thousands of striking mine workers will gather at the Bonacop Stadium, which has been their central meeting point since the strike began last week's Thursday. The CCMA has set aside three days to mediate in the standoff between Anku and Platinum Mines, which they hope will end this week. The world's biggest trading powers have pledged to work toward a global agreement on free trade and environmental goods. However, no timeline has been given for talks intended to support the fight against climate change. In a joint statement, the United States, European Union, China, Japan and several other developed economies say the agreement will take effect once there is participation by a critical mass of members at the World Trade Organization, WTO. Last month, the WTO reached its first trade reform agreement at the Bali talks, potentially adding hundreds of billions of dollars to the global economy. Hundreds of millions of hectares of natural land, nearly the size of Brazil, may be degraded by 2050 should current trends of unsustainable land use continue. The warning comes from the United Nations Environment Programme, UNEP, in a report released at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The agency says the need to feed a growing number of people globally has led more land being converted to cropland at the expense of the world's savanna, grassland and forests. UNEP Executive Director Achim Steiner, who attended the forum in Davos, says resources are becoming constrained. We are, for instance, in the area of agriculture, and land increasingly hitting a point where we have diminishing returns on an ever-expanding agricultural production area. We are also destroying lands, losing soil fertility, facing also the challenge of water resources. And therefore, on the one hand, the release of the report on land is about the facts and the signs of what is happening on the planet and the necessity to try and redesign our economies. The U.S. dollar is currently trading at 11.06 South African rands at 8.94 Botswana pullas and 5.52 Zambian quaches. It is also trading at 0.60 British pound and 0.73 to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,271 and platinum at $1,427 an ounce. Finally, the price of Brent crude oil is at $109.78 a barrel. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you, Tracy. Figle Lingwati up next with the sports news.
Indigenous Sports Update. This hour is starting off with swimming news. South Africa swimmers will use the Aquatic Super Series in Perth, Australia, to gauge where they are ahead of the Glasgow Commonwealth Games in July. The team will be spearheaded by Olympic gold medalist Shadley Claw, who is likely to feature in all the events in Glasgow later this year. Speaking on the team's departure, Leclerc says while it is too early in the season to view this gala as a dress rehearsal for the Commonwealth Games, he would nevertheless use it to gauge where he is in the medley events in particular. And in rugby news, South African Rugby Sevens team won a second straight USA Sevens title with a 14-7 triumph over the New Zealand side, overtaking the Kiwis for first place in the RB Sevens World Series. Branco Dupree and Venacock scored tries after a Scott Curry effort in a repeat of last year's final at Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas. It was a second straight cup crown for Neil Powell's side, who notched an emotional win on home soil in December in the third leg of the series. They moved on top of the standings with 78 points, just one more than New Zealand, who hosts the next tournament on the 7th and 8th of February. In hockey news, Investec South Africa's women's hockey team defeated world number 12 Belgium by six goals to nil in the first test match at Hartleville's Hockey Stadium in Cape Town on Sunday after they went into the break leading 3-0. South Africa's goals came from Kathleen Taylor in the 6th minute, Elise Davids in the 16th, Sula Demons in the 17th and 49th and Silly Evans in the 47th and the 61st minute. Belgian head coach Pascal Kina and his coach staff will take a long hard look at the match video and will be more composed and competitive in today's second test which is at 8 p.m. Central African time at Hadley Vale. In tennis news, world number 8 Stanislav Wawrinka held off an injured Rafael Nadal of Spain to win his first Grand Slam title in the Australian Open Men's Championship match. Lina of China also won the women's singles final for the first time. Our correspondent Geshe Mnyati reports. In all 12 previous meetings, Stanislav Wawrinka had never won a single set against Rafael Nadal. It all changed yesterday when the 28-year-old from Switzerland turned upside down the life of a great champion. Wawrinka started fast winning the first set 6-3. Nadal was almost on the verge of retiring after he hurt his back and needed medical timeout. He was no match to Wawrinka quickly losing the second set 6-2. Nadal made a dramatic comeback taking the third set 6-3. Nadal, the winner of 13 Grand Slam titles, courageously continued playing but inevitably went down 6-3 in the fourth set for Wawrinka to become the Australian Open champion. Wawrinka's career ranking automatically improved to number three in the world behind Novak Djokovic who he beat in the quarterfinals while Nadal remains the top-ranked player. Competing for the third time in the women's singles final, Li Na of China beat the number 20 seed Dominika Sibulkova of Slovakia 7-6-6 love. This was the second Grand Slam win for the Chinese player who won the French Open in 2011. The Slovakian had fought hard in the first set, forcing a tie-break, but she crumbled in the second set. Geshom Yati, Channel of Sports, London. Finally, with golf news, Sergio Garcia has won the Commercial Bank Qatar Masters, beating Mikko Leonen in a playoff. Both finished on 16 under par, and Garcia won at the third extra hole to claim his 11th European Tour victory. That's the sport news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. South Sudan civil society groups meet in Addis Ababa and pressure mounts on Zimbabwe's opposition leader Morgan Changurai to resign. That wraps up Africa Raz and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or follow us on Twitter at, at channelafrica1 or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Kofi Olomide with Louis. Kasi bako kiko bumangaite. Hey.